If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Good afternoon and welcome to this hour of the program on the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you. Our number in Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. Plenty to get to over the course of the next hour. We want to begin with a conversation around national security and what Canada's national security threats are, what our priorities ought to be, and how those have evolved over the years. In addition to that, what role has the pandemic played in shaping a rethink of national security. There's an important new book out on the subject called Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Stephanie Carvin is an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and is the author of said book. Joins us on the line here this afternoon, Professor Carvin. Great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on again. It's interesting. We talk about national security as a field of study or or even as a concept. I mean, is, is there... Can we objectively define it, or is it something that's inherently subjective, maybe even a little political? Well, you know, there is no set definition of national security in Canada. Uh, my colleague, Craig Forsyth, um, who, who's a good friend and um, I occasionally podcast, but uh, he did a study and looked at all Canadian laws and found something like 30 different definitions of national security in Canadian law. So, no, there isn't one definition. Um, but I think, you know, national security has to be uh, something to deal, something that really kind of covers, you know, protecting the Canadian way of life, if such a thing could be said, as well as, um, you know, kind of trying to maintain a kind of social stability that we've come to, uh, you know, that we've come to enjoy, fortunately, here in Canada as well. So it, it's more than, than it's not just defending the country. Uh, it, it's actually uh, the maintenance of a kind of order. And I don't mm. think that order has to be, um, you know, repressive in any kind of way. I think it has to be, you know, ensuring that people have the right to speak their views and, and to advocate for change and things like that. You kind of laid out in the book, and, and you sort of focus on, on three main areas. There's, you know, the foreign influence side of it. There's the cyber threats and espionage side of it. There's the violent extremism side of it. You, you also argue that pandemics in and of themselves are not necessarily national security threats, but that there are ways that maybe a situation like this can exacerbate those other threats. So what do you see as the nexus here? Yeah, I mean, with the pand- it's funny because I wrote the book and then the pandemic happened and I was like, yeah. oh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> and, and it's funny because, you know, you started the question, well, well, what is a national security threat? And they said, well, it's something that kind of disrupts our way of life. Well, nothing's disrupted our way of life more than the pandemic, right? right. So, um, but at the same time, I think just we have to be really careful and just not everything that's bad is a national security threat. And I think we really have to resist this idea. In the, in the early days, we saw a lot of people saying, oh, this is an intelligence failure. And, you know, we need to have surveillance and all these kinds of things. And I'm kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, you know, this is a pandemic. It's a public health crisis. 
And within that public health crisis, there's national security elements. But I don't want CSIS running around telling us how to manage the pandemic, right? I want CSIS Mm -hmm. making sure that the doctors who should be telling us how to run the pandemic are safe and protected and that our research is okay. So that's how I would differentiate between the two. Right. And I mean, there there are ways in which, for example, um, extremist elements might capitalize on a situation like this, or we see it play out kind of un- under that umbrella of, you know, foreign disinformation. You know, we're, so we, we do see elements of this, but it's more, I guess, how they're reflected in the pandemic then. Exactly. And that's exactly, it's a good, you know, that's a good point. So, you know, we have seen, um, you know, as you say, I talk a lot about uh, violent extremism, um, espionage, uh, Ford influence activities, and then some of the vectors like cyber. And all of those have been affected by the pandemic. Um, there has been a rise of extremism, right? As, some, as well as conspiracy theories, which, you know, you're allowed to have a conspiracy, you're allowed to subscribe to a conspiracy theory. That's your, your, you know, right as a Canadian. It's just when you want to act violently on them. And that's something that we do worry about uh, in national security. And certainly we have seen a lot of that really since the pandemic uh, started last year. Um, with regards to espionage, um, we've seen attributions by, ad, you know, use the term adversarial states, but in this case, it was actually named Russia, who was trying to hack into some of our vaccine research and other uh, pandemic uh, research uh, that, that's, re- you know, related to trying to solve the ongoing crisis. And then we've seen foreign interference, as you say. We have seen, um, for example, the use of social media to try and um, scare people into not taking vaccines or that, you know, coronavirus is caused by 5G and all these other kind of uh, weird things. Because, you know, adversarial states have an interest in us being in chaos and not doing a good job and trying to manage the pandemics and, and things like this. So I think this is, uh, you know, the pandemic highlights you know, the way uh, national security, as you say, intersects with, with, you know, something like the public health crisis. But that doesn't mean we should consider the public health crisis in and of itself as a national security threat. There, there's the, the China factor, because when we talk about <clears throat> foreign influence or cyber threats, espionage, you know, China looms large over a lot of this. So as it relates to investigating the origin this, of this pandemic, what China did to try to contain this pandemic, how China might trying to be taking advantage of, uh, you know, certain situations created by this pandemic. How does that change the national security dimension of all of this, you know, if, if say, this, this pandemic had started in, in some other country? I know it really, you know, sometimes I feel I could have written a book about China, um, you know, because it, it really does come out in, in probably about two thirds of the book. You know, there, there, there is a, either directly or indirectly uh, Canada's relations with China kind of behind the scenes. And, you know, Canada really does lack a strategy for how we engage, you know, China. And, you know, there's this instinct, I think, you know, a lot, you know, there's been a lot of concern about the things coming out uh, with China. Uh, and, and I think rightfully so. But I'm also very keen that, you know, to, to keep in mind that we've also seen a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes and, and things like this. So we have to have a balanced and measured approach to how this is all working out. So, for example, um, you know, we need to to have a strategy. And I think this is something that we've lacked for a very long time. We don't you know, how do we manage a country that 
is, um, you know, a large source of trade for us. Uh, you know, we send a lot of our exports there. That, uh, you know, is a sixth of the world's population that has, you know, a lot to offer artistically and culturally. Uh, it bring, gives us foreign investments, much needed money, but at the same time is acting in very increasingly aggressive way, particularly against a lot of our democratic allies, such as Australia, has kidnapped two of our Canadian citizens, and not to mention all the other Canadian citizens that are currently in jail in China right now, who have, you know, opaquely structured state-owned enterprises that seem to be interested in investing in Canada for unknown purposes. I mean, so how do you balance all of that out? And, you know, so I think this kind of brings me to one of the reasons I wrote the book, which is that um, we need to widen our understanding of national security. You know, I think for a lot of times that people, when they think of national security, they think of people running around in trench coats or or people running around with bombs or or these kinds of things. When actually our understanding needs to get much more sophisticated. You know, this isn't your grandfather's national security. Um, At the same time, if we are afraid in what we do, if we do these kind of like ham-fisted responses, that's actually going to make us worse off. So we need to be clear-eyed about what the threat is. We need to widen our understanding of what national security is. But we can't do so from a place of fear. We have to do so from a place of, of knowledge and a place of empathy. And that's what I'm trying to do with the book, really, is I'm trying to help people understand what it is that national security agencies worry about and why and, you know, start thinking about, you know, how should we as a democratic multicultural power do something about it? Yeah, which involves thinking about it in a Canadian context, right? And it, I mean, it was true in the Cold War, it was true post 9-11, it's true to a large extent today that, you know, our national security concerns overlap with the Americans, with other allies. But we, we maybe in the past, we haven't often thought more specifically about Canadian national security and, and looking at it almost kind of in, in isolation in that sense. Is that, is that part of what you're trying to do here? Exactly. And, you know, um, you know, we, I, I always see it as a luxury. You know, we, we've been in this position of what might be called geopolitical luxury. We are surrounded by three different oceans and a mostly benign neighbor to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And as a result of this, we don't have to think about national security. And actually, if you're a politician, you actually don't benefit from talking about foreign affairs or national security, at least not until very recently. And I think part of the reason is that you, Canadians feel safe, and, and that's a good thing, right? It's nice that we wake up in the morning, we don't worry about, you know, our, what our, our geopolitical neighbors are up to, at least when we did a bit during the Trump administration, but that's a, that's a whole other story right now. Um, but the, the fact is, you know, we haven't had to worry about these things, but the way that threats are changing, particularly cyber and espionage and foreign influence, the way that, that this change is taking place, we have to start thinking about national security, in, in, unfortunately, but we haven't done this for a very long time. And I worry that we're a little bit out of practice. And, you know, we're trying to flex muscles that we haven't really flexed in a very long time. So, um, but this requires a sustained effort and focus. And, you know, unfortunately, well, fortunately, governments like to spend money on things like education, healthcare, transport, and things like that. But they also need to start thinking about, you know, do we have the right national security policies and laws in place for the challenges of the 21st century? And I'm not sure that we do. 
Right. And beyond the question of safety, there's another interesting element you touch on in the book. It's it's economic, economic security. And there, there seems to be a lot of overlap right now between national security and the economy. I mean, we've got, you know, strategic uh, industries. We saw what happened with, you know, that, that colonial pipeline hack in the U.S., obviously a big decision we got to make on 5G. So there's certainly, you know, some economic issues that come into the conversation, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I try to emphasize in the book that, like, I'm actually a little bit uncomfortable. I'm like, you know, how much do we really want to securitize the economy? And, you know, out west where you are, people might have a very different view of that from where I sit in in, in central Ontario. But I think the thing is that, um, you know, the the, nature, the way of, of these, again, the way the evolution of these threats with, you know, questions over sources of foreign direct investment state-owned enterprises, or what I sometimes call state-championed enterprises, like Huawei, where, okay, it's not owned by the state, but it's clearly championed by the state, and as a result, has a lot of backing from the state. When these entities come into our country, they have the ability to skew the landscape. You know, we are, you know, supposed to be a free market economy, but these are businesses that can't fail because they're effectively backed up by loans from the state and Chinese power and things like this. And as a result, they have market distorting effects. And that can sometimes fundamentally change the landscape. So this gets back to what I was talking about, you know, right at the beginning of the interview when we're talking about, well, you know, things that kind of challenge order and and things like this. And, you know, we need to have a conversation about how we feel about, you know, state security and the free market and getting in because you know ever since the 1980s the mantra has been get the government out of the economy and suddenly when we look at these new challenges we're like oh we need to get back in get back in but we again this is another set of muscles we haven't exercised in a long period of time so you know we need to have conversations between the private sector between researchers between the government and national security to kind of figure out okay well how do we want to actually manage you know state-owned, you know, state investment, foreign direct investment, state-owned enterprises. Because, again, we, we just kind of ignored this problem for a very long period of time, and suddenly we realized that, you know, as, as Stephen Harper actually put it in 2012, you know, the Canadian government didn't get out of the oil fields, you know, in the 1980s, only to have other countries come in and buy it up for themselves. Right. You know, mm-hmm. we, they, they, we got the Canadian government out, but now we have foreign governments in. And how do we feel about that? And I think most Canadians are, are probably a little bit wary, and I think they're not necessarily wrong. Yeah. Some important conversations. The book is called Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Stephanie Carvin, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right, all the best. Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Again, the book called Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. All right, well, as, as Jock mentioned, uh, some, some changes were confirmed today for this year's Calgary Stampede. And look, let's not lose sight of the fact that we're going to have a Calgary Stampede this year. And there's still a lot of planning to be done. But some decisions have been made with regard to the Rangeland Derby, as mentioned. But there is going to be rodeo. There is going to be live music. There is going to be a midway. But joining us uh, for the latest on where things stand with planning for this year's Calgary Stampede, Christina Barnes joins us, Manager of Communications and Media Relations at the Calgary Stampede. Uh, Christina, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. 
So, I mean, this is an ongoing process. There's been planning in in the works for quite some time. In fact, looking ahead to what this year's stampede might look like, there is still planning to be done. Let me just ask you, first of all, just, you know, this entire process, maybe not knowing what July was going to look like, the uncertainty, planning for different scenarios. Just kind of give us an overview, if you can, of everything that's that's gone into that. We start planning in July, usually each year uh, when Stampede ends. Last year in July, when we didn't have Stampede, we still began planning. Um, it's a, a year-long process, very in-depth. And of course, this year with the added challenges of the pandemic, certainly a big part of it. But our um, team of 2,500 passionate volunteers and our employees that are you know, um, you know dedicated to all the different aspects of what we do at Stampede have been working hard, knowing that things would need to be flexible. And we've said that all along, that things are going to continue to adapt and change as we move forward. Um, And we certainly are expecting a stampede that is going to look different. Um, Some, like you said, experiences that are familiar that will, um, you know, be modified a little bit different than what we've seen before. Um, And Stampede Park itself will also look different. I mean, we got some some clarity this week from the Alberta government in terms of what health restrictions might look like come July. To to what extent, though, did the announcement this week affect some of the decisions made today, or how is it affecting planning going forward? Well, we sat with much of Alberta yesterday, I think, listening as uh, the Premier rolled out the plan as uh, we stepped towards July. I mean, it's very encouraging to get that news yesterday, and it gives us a little bit of a better idea of what we're working towards. Um, I don't know that it changes uh, our plans right at this time, but I think as we move forward, it gives us the opportunity to um, adapt and change um, and evolve the um, experiences that we're planning to present. But overall, I think, um, you know, if you come to the Stampede this year, uh, expect more space. Um, we know that there are high traffic areas and pressure points on Stampede Park, and we want to uh, make sure that those are not crowded areas. Um, an emphasis on outdoor activities is really important. So some things have uh, changed and the layout will change in some areas to ensure for more outdoor activities. And we know there will be um, capacities, whether at the gate or in the grandstand. Um, but what those might be moving forward again will depend on um, what stage we're at. But, you know, really um, optimistic looking at July that, you know, not just Stampede, but a lot of experiences will be possible um, that we haven't been able to enjoy over the last year and a half. Yeah, yeah, and I think people are looking forward to that. I mean, as mm-hmm. I say, we're going to have a midway, we're going to have live music, we're going to have competitive rodeo, we're going to have the young Canadians, we're going to have the fireworks, a lot of the elements of Stampede that people are familiar with. But let's talk about the decision that, you know, as, as Jock alluded to, there's there's some disappointment in the decision regarding the Rangeland Derby and the Chuck Wagon races. And that's a tough one and, and completely understand, as Jock mentioned, um, the frustration uh, and the disappointment among the drivers. They've been working so hard. Uh, through last year and through the spring, just caring for their horses, first of all, but getting them ready through spring training this year. And and we certainly recognize that and know how hard this decision hits when we have to make it. Um, It's not a decision we wanted to make. Uh, We 
have had chuck wagon racing be part of the Calgary Stampede for almost 100 years, and we absolutely uh, expect to have it back next year and for many more years to come. So it's a very important part of Stampede, but it's because it's such an important part of Stampede that we have to make this decision. Um, the chuck wagon racing season last year was completely cancelled. Uh, they haven't raced in sanctioned events so far this year. And I think even in comparison to any other professional sport, which these are certainly professional athletes, both the drivers Mm -hmm. and the horses, um, you wouldn't go from, you know, preseason spring training to a high-stakes championship. It just isn't um, something that we were comfortable doing. And so, you know, in the the long-term health of the sport and recognizing the drivers are worried about their future, um, we want to ensure the future of the sport and its safety here at the Stampede. Now, this is going to affect the, the evening show, and there are still plans mm-hmm. underway for what's described as a reimagined evening show, which will include some live music. But tell us a bit more about the situation with Paul Brand, because he was set to be a part of the grandstand show. What, what's what's happened there? Paul Brand has been such a big part of our Stampede family. I think from his yeah. uh, beginning of uh, winning the talent show to, you know, he's been a big part of the grandstand show before and we certainly hope uh, for many more years to come to see him. Um, he made some tough decisions, like we're all having to make, um, to postpone all of his summer shows, uh, and that included the Stampede. So spending some time with his family, and we certainly wish him the best, um, but are moving forward with the Grandstand Show and a lot of the, the favorite experiences. Um, the Young Canadians are another group that's really had to um, manage through the pandemic, like so many other young performance groups, um, you know, going online, practicing virtually, practicing in very small groups. So, um, you know, they've really had to adapt and change. And now we'll see a different grandstand show uh, again, reimagined for 2021. We're calling the first bit Bronx After Dark. And again, that grandstand show to follow um, and a spectacular fireworks, which is always something that I think uh, so many of us look forward to each night of Stampede. Now, there's going to be some input, obviously, from the federal government. We've we got to get rodeo athletes here, mm-hmm. even midway, midway workers, uh, et cetera, need to come into Canada. What kind of preparation has there been or, or at least guidance from the federal government in terms of quarantining, maybe even setting up a bubble we hear for rodeo athletes? What can you tell us about that? Well, we've had the benefit of uh, being able to talk to other groups that have done it um, before us. So if you look in Calgary at the um, Canadian or the the curling championships, um, you know, with international uh, competitors from Canadian competitors coming from all of the different provinces and how they worked with the federal government, um, the NHL, we've gotten advice from a lot of different groups on how they move forward um, and our, ourselves working with the federal government in ensuring that, first of all, we can have those rodeo competitors come up from the U.S. and then um, ensuring that they're here safely once they're um, at Stampede Park, knowing that, you know, a number of them do come with uh, livestock, their horses, uh, so they will need a home away from home as well. So still some moving pieces and some work to be done there, and we hope to keep sharing the information and it's it's hard to say we don't know the answer right at this very minute, but we're going to uh, keep sharing things as we move forward into July. All right. So more announcements to come, I guess, probably premature to pin any specific mm-hmm. dates to future announcements. I guess just uh, stay tuned. You bet. And, and recognizing again that it's it's a different stampede this year. It won't be your 2019 yeah. stampede. Um, safety protocols in place, but fun in place, too. All right. Well, much more. Uh, CalgaryStampede.com. Christina, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you.
All right. That is Christina Barnes uh, with the Calgary Stampede, Manager of Communications and Media Relations. So latest on some of the decisions they've made, areas where there's still some planning underway. So some disappointment on, on the uh, chuck wagon races. That's the decision they made. And that's more, you know, due to competitive issues in terms of the fact that they haven't been running these races. But uh, otherwise, there will be rodeo events. There will be live music. There will be a midway. All of that. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour. Uh, just to give you a heads up, I mentioned that Dr. Dina Hinshaw would be providing an update at 3.30 today. We've just been informed that Premier Jason Kenney will be joining Dr. Hinshaw for that update at 3.30 or thereabouts. So we will have that live for you. Obviously, more uh, comments on the uh, reopening plan and some other issues that I think it's important to uh, get some, some comment from the Chief Medical Officer of Health on. One of them being the question of second doses. Now, as I said earlier, and hopefully we're going to be in a position as we get into June to really start to pivot to second doses. But at the moment, there are a lot of Canadians in limbo uh, who got their vaccines relatively early on and still don't know when they're going to be getting their second dose. Now, given how provinces rolled out their, their vaccines, uh, this is typically older Canadians. Now, in Alberta, I think for the 75 and up group, we, we did mostly ensure that they got their scheduled two doses. And Alberta's a little bit further ahead in terms of having fully dosed individuals. I think we're at about 6% uh, compared to 3% nationally, somewhere in, in that neighborhood. But it's really important now that we start talking about this and the provinces start making plans to ensure that those older Canadians don't fall through the cracks here. It was a really fascinating piece in the Globe and Mail today, exploring this in more detail and making the case for why older Canadians need to be getting their second vaccine doses right now. One of the authors of that piece joins us on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Nathan Stahl is a geriatrician at Sinai Health in Toronto, Assistant Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table. Dr. Stahl, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having me. Uh, and obviously, you can speak better to the situation in Ontario than, than elsewhere, but uh, are, are provinces now starting to take heed on this point? Are we seeing some movement in this direction? We've seen some movement, um, in specifically in the provinces of British Columbia, Quebec, uh, and, and Nova Scotia, who have all uh, indicated or announced plans to shorten the interval for second doses for the very elderly and also for some immunocompromised individuals. Uh, but some of those plans have not yet started, uh, and some provinces like my own in Ontario have suggested that they are looking at this, but still there are no definitive plans that have been released. So when we talk about older Canadians in this context, then then who are we talking about? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. We keep redefining who is old, right? Uh, well, but, I'm in my you know, 40s. I'm old, <laughs> I would argue, but... No, I mean, older Canadians are generally considered 65 and above, and then we consider the very elderly 80 and above. And I think there are many people in their 80s who don't consider themselves very elderly. But, you know, terminology aside, um, there have been literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of octo and nonogenarians, the 80 and 90 year olds who were vaccinated back in February, who have been waiting weeks and months to, to get their second doses into their arms. And I think there's a number of good reasons why we should circle back and do this right now. Let's be clear. The, the, the decision was made to extend the interval between two doses 
because modeling data showed, and I, I think we've got to reemphasize, this was the right decision to make, that if we got more first doses into arms, we'd save the lives of more Canadians. And, and there's mm-hmm. no doubt that we did so. But now is the time to circle back to some of the people who are both most vulnerable and have been waiting the longest, and that's our very older adults, the very elderly, and get second needles into their arms. Right. And, and you know, the concern is that that interval in between doses, if it goes too long, we create vulnerability for them, right? That, that protection starts to wane. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the interval of three or four weeks that, that is there for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, that interval was it's probably shorter than it should be. That was an interval that was established given the need for speed in some of the clinical trials. But we've had data from the United Kingdom showing that you actually may get more immunity at the 12-week interval. But you're absolutely right. It's a trade-off between how long do we leave someone to maximize immunity by extending those second doses, but then there's a valley of vulnerability between those doses. And now, for the very elderly, particularly with some of the variants of concern, uh, you know, in the United Kingdom, they've actually moved to shorten that interval to eight weeks because they're concerned about the variant specifically identified, first identified in India, but right. they've said in our very elderly and our immunocompromised populations, we're going to give shots at an eight-week interval. So, and, and I'm just trying to do the math in my head. If we're talking about individuals who got their, their first dose in February, that would put them, I, I think, somewhere around 12 weeks then, or, or does that sound about right? Uh, yeah, well, some people, you know, if we're approaching, we're approaching almost four months for some of these people if they oh, go at yeah. the beginning of February, right? Because uh, we're almost at the beginning of June here. So there are some people who are going to be butting up against that 16 week, but you're right. Most people are probably in the 10 to 12 week, uh, range, uh, in terms of vaccines. But, you know, the, the other point here is that we have a lot of vaccine coming into our country. Um, and right. so, you know, some people have looked at this as pitting, do we give shots to 12 to 17-year-olds versus the elderly, second doses for the elderly? And I, I don't actually think we need to look at it that way. You know, if, if you look just, you know, uh, this week alone, we're getting 2 million doses. Next week, 2.4 million. The week after, 2.4 million. In fact, every week through June into July, we're getting 2.4 million doses. And then in July, we have weeks where we're getting you know, back down to 2.2 million, but there's millions of doses coming into our country. We can be both providing first mm-hmm. doses to 12 to 17 year olds and second doses to older adults. So can we come up with, with you know, uh, a kind of a clear number that's, you know, for, for 70 and up, it's it's eight weeks or 60 and up, it's 10 weeks or, you know, can can we establish something as, as clear as that, do you think? Well, you know, in our op-ed in the Globe and Mail, we talked about 70 and above. And that, that was just more a, a cutoff that, that we came up as, as co-authors. But if you look at just, um, if you, look at just uh, you know, the, the number of individuals who have died in our country of COVID-19, 85% of all COVID-19 deaths have been in those 70 and above, despite the fact they mm-hmm. account for just 12% of the population. So, you know, I would start with the very elderly, 90, 80-year-olds. Uh, and, and if you can, and supply permits, I think 70 is a pretty reasonable cutoff to be thinking about giving second doses to right now. And maybe eight weeks maximum then? You know, I, I, many of these people as are, are pro- who have first doses are probably already at that eight-week mark, right. right? Because they were probably vaccinated. So many of them are already there. Um, you know, the people who are just getting vaccinated now, we can deal with that uh, in the summertime in the coming weeks as we have a better understanding of what that optimal interval is. But I think based on what we know about vaccines, based on the data we're seeing in the United Kingdom, and based on sort of 
maximizing a bit of immunity but not leaving too long a valley of vulnerability, I think you're probably right. Somewhere around eight to ten weeks is the sweet spot that, that's going to be best for a lot of people. Yeah, there's another interesting issue that I think relates to this, and it concerns those who have previously had COVID. There was another uh, piece in The Lancet this week arguing that, you know, maybe those who have had COVID only need one dose and we can consider them fully vaccinated. That I think that would make a lot of these other choices easier, uh, you know, if we, if we go down that path. But there's some debate about whether to do so. I mean, do, do you have a position on that? Look, um you're right. In some jurisdictions, have absolutely decided to go that way. Um, but we are not going to be in a constrained supply in Canada. We are, will have more than enough doses for every Canadian to get two shots. So uh, I think at the end of the day, this is going to have little consequence on our vaccination program. I think it probably makes a bigger difference when you think about things like what is a fully vaccinated person able or not able to do and you know that's when if it's quarantining for example after international travel uh or after exposure where we've changed the guide or we may change the guidelines for people who are fully vaccinated alberta actually has done that for fully vaccinated people you also include the people who have recovered from COVID 19 who have natural immunity that's where i think it probably makes a bigger difference yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, this op-ed, it's uh, up at theglobeandmail.com today. Dr. Stahl, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Uh, Dr. Nathan Stahl, geriatrician at Sinai Health in Toronto, Assistant Scientific Director of Ontario's COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, uh, one of three authors of this piece in the Globe and Mail today, making the argument, in no uncertain terms, older Canadians need their second dose right now. Well, yesterday, but right now. So certainly there were those who got the vaccine early on, and we prioritize them for a reason, who have gone past eight weeks, gone past 10 weeks, maybe even some situations gone past 12 weeks. I think there's less of that in Alberta. I know my dad, who's uh, 75 years old, when he got his vaccine, he got his vaccine the first dose, got, had his appointment right away for the second dose, got his second dose. So that's how we approached it with those 75 and older. So I think Alberta's in a slightly better position. But it is something we want to think about. So it's not meant as an indictment overall of this strategy, but just recognizing that for some, we got to make sure we get them that second dose. It was an interesting point he made there as well. Someone texted earlier and asked about the reopening plan to say, well, hang on. Are there any rules here that are specific to people who are vaccinated? And really, no, there's not. The point is that if enough people are vaccinated, we can ease restrictions for everyone. But there there are going to be some exceptions to that. And I think Alberta has already demonstrated that the rules around quarantining. So if you're fully vaccinated and you're determined to be a close contact of someone who has tested positive for COVID, you do not have to isolate. As long as you don't have symptoms. If you are partially vaccinated, the quarantine interval is, is shorter. I suspect we're going to see something similar at some point soon when it comes to travel based on. A, whether you're vaccinated, and B, where you're traveling to. If you're unvaccinated and you're traveling to a hot spot like Brazil or India, then you're going to have a problem. If you're fully vaccinated, the rules are going to be different, I suspect. And if you're fully vaccinated and you're traveling to a jurisdiction that, that isn't really having any problems right now, you may not have to quarantine at all. But again, I'm, I'm kind of speculating, but there are going to be those kinds of, of exceptions when it comes to different rules that apply depending on your vaccination status. 
Welcome back. Rob Regenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. So there, there's, there's a broader conversation happening, and not just in Canada, about the uh, energy transition and what that looks like and, uh, you know, the role that the fossil fuel industry will play in that. So we're at a bit of a pivotal moment in Canada, I think, because there's still such a need for what the oil and gas industry is producing. And I think as we move forward, a need for that expertise, but also recognition that, that things are changing. Maybe this is uh, an example of that change or a reflection of the times, perhaps, after 72 years as the Canadian Association of Oil Well Drilling Contractors, the organization has rebranded as of today as the Canadian Association of Energy Contractors. So what does that that change represent? What does it mean in practice? Joining us to talk more about all of this is Mark Schultz. He is CEO of the Canadian Association of Energy Contractors. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Great to be here, Rob. Thanks for having me. So this didn't just happen overnight, obviously, and uh, this has been in the works for some time. But talk a bit about what what prompted this and then what, what finally led to the decision. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I mean, so our organization, as you had said, has been around for 72 years. 1949 was the date that we incorporated. And, you know, it's important to reflect what our industry looked like in 1949. I mean, oil was the predominant commodity that we drilled for. Um, It started back in the discovery of Leduc in 49, and the Oil Well Drilling Contractors Association was formed by 10 drilling contractors at that time. And they decided to come together as Canadian um, service companies because they they wanted to work on common common interests and proving the uh, the business of the industry, health and safety, et cetera. Um, but even since 1949, I mean, uh, Western Canada is predominantly a, a gas basin, and so 50% of our members today are are drilling for natural gas. I mean, that doesn't that's not reflected in our our name. It continued to be the oil well drilling contractors. And of course, as of recently, we uh, I have members that are drilling for geothermal. We're drilling, we are going to be drilling for uh, blue hydrogen um, once we kind of start uh, perfecting the, the techniques and technology. Uh, potash, we drill for helium. I and mean, there's a huge helium uh, discovery in, in Saskatchewan, and one of my members was drilling for that. And so it was, um, you know, back in, uh, I guess, early 2020, we decided to come together and just say, look, um, we know the industry has changed over the seven decades we've been around. Um, is it time to maybe look at um, projecting out what we think the future is going to be? And that is really um, kind of the the impetus for why we decided to um, change our name from drilling oil well drilling contractors to energy contractors. And that is, in fact, what we are. We're, it doesn't matter what we drill for. We are drilling for energy. And so we wanted that reflected in our, our story and our advocacy going forward. Well, and, and this process involved, you know, conversations with members and, and this change was approved by members. But, I mean, it, you know, it wasn't unanimous, right? And, and there, were, there was some opposition to this. Well, look, 72 years, Rob, I mean, that's a, that's a yeah. long time to have a name. And no question, I mean... It, um, there's a lot of legacy that, that went into the name of CAODC. I mean, I'm from a small town in rural Alberta, and CAODC was that, you know, that emblem represented, in many cases, the service sector in those communities. So, right. um, yeah, it, it was, it was a, I think it was a, it was a, it was a good debate, uh, an intelligent debate. And in the end, it was about, look, we, we greatly respect our, our history um, oil and gas is not going away anytime soon. We know that. Um, 
uh, pragmatic politicians and policymakers know that. But the reality is the industry has changed over the last uh, seven decades, and we wanted to project out um, this this exciting opportunity. And I, I refuse to be negative about this. This is this has nothing to do about um, you know all. You know, we need to somehow you know change our brand because you know we are embarrassed of our story past. No, right. not at all. It's it's really just trying to uh, perfect and and be a little more accurate on what we actually do for Canadians and and uh, folks around the world as we produce energy in the cleanest uh, possible way. And that also uh, comes into play in terms of uh, carbon competitiveness as well. So ESG. Uh, government policy, uh, both in the market and, and government, it, it, it is coming. And uh, and the industry needs to, I think, be a, a little bit more attentive and ensuring that we're positioning our industry for success. Well, it's interesting because I think you're kind of getting criticism from both sides, those maybe who might have resisted this change. But on the other side, those who are, are skeptical or, criti- or critical of industry when it comes to embracing energy transition who might see this as you know a little more than a, a pr exercise so beyond the name change i mean wh- what does this actually represent well i think what it means is that look there's there's a there's a debate that's going on uh within canada and and around the world and um unfortunately i think a lot of ideology uh and lack of realistic uh, policy discussions are unfolding here. Okay. And so I think what's important is to reflect on there is really only there's there's only one avenue towards net zero, particularly in Canada, and that includes partnership with the oil and gas industry. Canada cannot meet Paris. Canada cannot meet any of its ambitious targets if, if it does not work with the oil and gas uh, sector. And yes, we are going to see new budding industries like geothermal and hydrogen and you know helium lesser degree on on the energy side but certainly a commodity um but the reality is the oil and gas industry in canada cannot go away anytime soon because the fact is if you turn if you if you shut this industry down we don't have the financial and fiscal capability to survive as a country without it and so if we want to be pragmatic about this take a balanced approach of of working with the industry. It's going to take a public-private partnership. Um, you know, industry certainly uh, is not going to be able to, to take the, this this burden on itself. And we're seeing some investments from the federal and provincial governments on CCUS, uh, which I think that as the technology becomes much more readily available, I mean, that's going to ensure the fossil fuel hydrocarbon-based sector um, is going to be able to continue to move down to lower emission stages and ultimately get to net zero. But it's it's going to take time, and it means partnering with the industry. And there's a willing partner. There's a willing dance partner to get to get this done. We're not afraid of change. We, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I always say is, you know, 20 years ago, Rob, it took us about 40 days to drill some of these unconventional uh, wells that are taking us about five to six days today. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an 85% productivity improvement, which means, you know, effectively an 85% reduction in emissions as well, because we're not using our engines, we're not on the land anymore. Um, and so there have been improvements over the last 20 years. Uh, the technology is just going to get better, and we're excited about the future. If if every oil, oil and gas producing country in the world today 
decided tomorrow uh, decided to adopt Canadian regulatory standards, we'd have an immediate 25% reduction in GHG emissions. That's that's an exciting story. We we are the ones that are going to lead this revolution. Um, we're going to be part of the solution. And the name change, I think, is a reflection on our willingness, our eagerness, our excitement, and the opportunities that are ahead for us. It's interesting. And I, I think there's a balance, too, you know, I mean, for, for associations like yours, because, you know, to, to be a voice for change and, and to work toward that transition. But at the same time, as you alluded to, unrealistic expectations can lead to bad policies and regulatory obstacles. So, how do you balance that in terms of saying, look, we're a part of the solution, but, you know, we're also going to, to be a voice for industry when it comes to some of those bad policies or unrealistic expectations? Well, I think the first step is acknowledging we have an issue. I mean, we know that, you know, climate change is, is here. It is, a, it is a huge issue for the environment. It's a huge issue for Canadians and, and folks around the world. And I think the first step is saying, look, yeah, we, I mean, this is a, this is an issue we have to, we have to solve. Uh, the next step is then saying, okay, so that's the outcome. Um, let's make sure that the policies that we implement are fuel and technology neutral, right? Because what's, what we're seeing right now is this ideological narrative that's saying that regardless of the consequences and regardless of whether the oil and gas industry can take carbon out of a barrel of oil, we want to shut we want to shut it down to me that doesn't make any sense it's not practical it's not realistic and any sort of projections of the growth in energy the world is going to need means that fossil fuels are going to be a big component of it so acknowledging the problem and then working towards policy solutions that are realistic that work with the industry in partnership uh and 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 ultimately, uh, you know, achieve those targets. Now, um, you know, we, we are all we, we've talked a lot about you know net net uh, zero by 2050. Look, there, the current commercialization of technologies today, um, and even the IEA report, which which many folks have have talked about. Well, this is the end of oil and gas. Even talk about there aren't even technologies today that we know of that are is going to be able to take us to 2050. 30 years is a long time, Rob. And as I had said before, it took us 20 years to increase the productivity by 85% in, in our drilling operations. So not to say that it's not good to have aspirational and big, hairy, audacious goals, as we, as we would call them, um, but we have to be practical in how we implement them. Exactly. Much more at the website at caoec.ca. Mark, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. No problem. Thank you. All right, that is Mark Schultz, he is CEO of the Canadian Association of Energy Contractors, as they are known as of today, caoec.ca, more their website. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.